Amoti lechem in haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Leaving 
fate I will read your Torah over and over I'll think on your words over and over I'll read your Torah over and over I'll meditate and I will read your letters over and over I'll think on your words over and over I'll read your letters over and over I'll meditate yes I will read your letters over and over I'll think on your words Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. This week's portion in the Hebrew is entitled Vayera. 
And it comes from the first phrase of verse 1 where it says, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and the Lord appeared, and he appeared, is Vayera. And it tells us the story of Abraham sitting out there in the oaks of Mamre. It's the heat of the day. And suddenly he looks up and he sees three figures of persons coming toward him. Let me read to you just this opening portion where the Lord is going to have lunch with Abraham and Sarah. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while I was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the earth. And he said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight... Please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And he said, and they said, uh, so do as you have said. So before we go any further, there's a couple of things that we need to take note of about this uh, chance appearing to be chance meeting. Uh, between Abraham and the Lord. The Lord decides to appear to Abraham in the form of three figures. This shouldn't be shocking to us who are messianics. Uh, God has already established his covenant with Abraham. In fact, if you refer to last week's portion, there were three parts to Abraham's covenant. One emphasized the role of the father. One was the son. One was the Holy Spirit. And so God's already been doing these things in three in a three form. And so he comes as three figures before Abraham. By the way, uh, if you as you do continuing studies throughout the scripture, the number three will thematically appear as the number that is consistent when God makes covenants. And thematically, the number three has to do with God making covenant or agreement with men. Um, and it says he's sitting there in the tent, uh, at the doorway of the tent, and he looks up. Verse 2, and when he lifted up his eyes, Torah teachers take note of this. Um, why does it say, well, he was looking down and then he looked up? Well, the answer is, if you go back to the previous portion... Abraham was just circumcised a few days earlier. By the way, a few days after circumcision, you'll be sitting in the heat of the day looking down also. You will not be looking up and feel too lively, uh, you know, if you've had that kind of uh, surgical uh, procedure done on you. So he's sitting there. He's recovering from his circumcision. And that's when this meeting is going to take place. He has completed the rite of circumcision, the sign of the covenant, and suddenly the Lord is now going to appear to him. It also is the passage where we get the teaching and the expression about Abraham. We call the works of Abraham our hospitality. Abraham is going to invite the Lord to come to lunch. And the way he refers to the invitation, he says, oh, just come and rest under the shade of the tree. I'll bring you some water and a piece of bread. As you all know, that is not what happened. That was the invitation that he would do some minor thing for a guest that was coming. But instead, there was a, a, a full meal that was put on. 
uh, he had a calf uh, uh, butchered and slaughtered so that they might have fresh veal. He had curds made. He asked Sarah to make her fancy cakes, her bread cakes that she makes. In other words, he put on a very nice meal uh, for the Lord to come there, but his first expression of it, his invitation to it, is to diminish it as though it was not that big a deal, some water and a piece of bread. Um, and by the way, that's a mark of great hospitality. You invite someone to something, they're not quite sure is going to, what they're going to receive, but they, they're going to receive something pleasant. They arrive, and suddenly you have this incredible layout of great hospitality in the form of the food and, and how you accommodate your guests. And so and that's how you'd be known for your hospitality is it exceeds the expectations even of your own invitation. And so we credit Abraham with one of the great works of Abraham is his hospitality. The, uh, I want to share a very traditional uh, story uh, about Abraham. It's not biblical. It's an extra biblical story that we tell about Abraham. It illustrates um, some of the character of Abraham and talks about the spiritual issues that we learn from the personality of, of Abraham. It, the story goes like this, that Abraham is there at his tents. It's like this story. Abraham is there at his tents. He's near Mamre. And a caravan owner comes by. And uh, because Abraham had a well there, uh, the caravan owner asked if it would be possible that he could draw some of the water from his well to uh, water his camels uh, and his servants that are on the caravan. Now, Abraham, because of his hospitality, not only gladly agrees to allow him to have some of the water from the well, but he himself jumps in and starts drawing the water from the well to water the camels. And this is a, a laborious task. This is a very serious, hospitable thing that Abraham does. His hospitality doesn't end there with caring for the caravan owner and his camels. He extends an invitation to him to join him in his tent for the night for a meal and that he can sleep in his tent, that the caravan owner won't have to set up his own campsite and all that. So the caravan owner comes and he's enjoying the evening meal with Abraham. And when suddenly the caravan owner reveals to Abraham that he is an idolater, that he is a worshiper of fire. And he expresses that's his sentiment, that's his belief system. Well, of course, Abraham does the righteous thing. He stands up, becomes indignant, grabs the man by his beard and his outer garment and throws him out of his tent into the dark of the night, never to be seen again. Now, the story goes that Abraham goes ahead and goes to bed that night and God comes to him in the form of a dream. And when God comes to him, he has a conversation with Abraham that goes like this. Abraham, I put up with that guy for 70 years. You can't put up with him for one night. And it kind of speaks to the whole subject of tolerance. One of the things that we try to teach about hospitality is one of the measures of hospitality, and that's what this story is trying to bring out. One of the measures of hospitality is to have a dose of tolerance. Um, there are, you know, when you're putting out your very best, 
uh, to show hospitality, you may be dealing with invitees who don't necessarily have the same appreciation uh, for some of the things that you've done. Uh, or that you would offer to them. Maybe they're not familiar with the particular class of foods or the extra effort that you had to go to do for them to receive the benefit of um, china or whatever dishes that you may have served. It may be your very best, and they treat it as cavalier and don't even recognize you know, what it is. Can't tell the difference between crystal and a, and a glass. Um, whatever the case may be, Part of the measure of hospitality is to extend class and hospitality even to people who don't understand it and can't value it or appreciate it quite to the fullness that was extended. And that you still extend your best hospitality to maybe people who are not deserving. The truth of the matter is that it's a, it's a beautiful picture of God's grace for us. You know, the scripture tells us that the Lord loved us and died for us in that while we were yet sinners, he did these things for us. We didn't at all deserve any of what he did, yet he did it for us. And so part of the works of Abraham, the teaching that we give of that, is that it's reflective of God's grace Sometimes you have to have a little tolerance to go with it. The people don't really appreciate it, don't really understand the hospitality you've extended. And, you know, take the classic case of you invite someone to stay, say at your place, and they overstay the invitation. You know, the old saying that uh, friends and fish, you know, are okay the first two days, but they begin to stink on the third day. Um, and sometimes, and I'm sure any of you have done it, it's happened to me, you'll invite somebody who's going to stay with you and they stay a little longer than the three-day, the fish-day rule. And if you can maintain your hospitality beyond that to extend further, now you're doing the hospitality of Abraham. You're doing the works of hospitality that Abraham has taught for us in this example. This is a very, very important thing for you to learn and to understand. Here's the reason why. They're going to have, the Lord is going to have lunch with Abraham here, and they're going to have a discussion about the birth of his son. They're, he's going to announce that Sarah is going to give birth next year at this same time. Um, and then they're going to have a conversation after the lunch that has to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is going to negotiate for the number of righteous in an effort to get the Lord not to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And how in the world does he have the courage or the, um, the guts, the confidence to be able to make such a request of the Lord the reason is that he is going to be able to intercede because he's shown hospitality before. So let me just tell you something, and here's the spiritual principle. Hospitality leads to intercession. 
as you show hospitality to brethren, God listens to you as you intercede on behalf of others. If you're willing to extend yourself to do to the benefit of others, then yes, he will listen to your counsel when you intercede on behalf of others. He will listen to you just as he did to Abraham. So we say the phrase, hospitality leads to intercession. If you are intending to intercede by prayer on the benefit of others, that is the time for you to show hospitality. That is the time for you to do good to other brethren. God will then listen to you and pay attention to you. Um, In the course of my life, I can tell you this principle works. It definitely works. And part of what we learn in this uh, portion speaks to this incredible spiritual principle that's demonstrated for us here by um, having this lunch. So uh, as we look at this portion, uh, the Lord comes in and decides to have lunch with Abraham and with Sarah. Verse 7, Abraham also ran to the herd, took a tender and choice calf, Gave it to the servant. He hurried hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree. This is where Orthodox Judaism has a real problem. Because Abraham just served the Lord a dairy product and a meat product in the same meal. And rabbinical Judaism teaches that you cannot have dairy and meat in the same meal. They base that on the commandment which says... You shall not boil the kid in the mother's milk. And three times in the Torah, we'll hear this instruction about not boiling the kid in the mother's milk. And so they have interpreted from it, you cannot in the same meal have dairy with meat. In Israel today, if you go travel, the breakfast meal is not a meat meal. It is a dairy meal. You can have cheeses. You can have vegetables, you can have fruits, you can have, but there will be no meat served. There's no such thing as a breakfast meat in Israel. And it's there to keep meat away from all the dairy. Now, when you go to lunch and you go to dinner, you will not see cheese. Uh, You will see some version of a a butter product, but it's more of a margarine thing. It won't be a, a dairy product. And you won't see milk served. And you won't see uh, ice cream being served for dessert in an evening meal. If you're walking down in the old city and you decide to go to the shawarma place where they got uh, falafels and stuff like that where you can get a a sandwich to eat there, uh, right across the street, you cannot walk out of this restaurant right into the ice cream one over there. And you can't walk out of the ice cream one and carry over. You can't carry ice cream into this and you can't carry that meat into that. And they literally will station the attendance to the two stores to make sure that the tourists don't get the two mixed up. You know, so, you know, you, you, if you want to eat an ice cream, you go over there, you don't come in here. And if you want to eat one of those, well, you go over here, but you don't go over there and, and you don't mix the two. And I've always found it uh, fascinating that they're in the old city right across from each other. They got a meat place and they got a dairy place and they have to go through all this tirade on, on all this business. Um, the, uh, just for the sake of discussion, let me go ahead and address this point. Uh, the commandment, uh, you will not boil the kid in the mother's milk. What does that have to do with? How does that fit into the dietary laws? How does that fit into the kosher laws? 
Again, three times the scripture says, you will not boil the kid in the mother's milk. So what exactly does that mean? I believe what that means is you will not boil the kid in the mother's milk. To do so would be utterly bizarre. The mother's milk is for the life of the kid. Why would you use that as part of the instrument of his death? Why are you mixing something that's a powerful symbol of life with something which is a powerful symbol of life? God separates those things. He always has separated. So he doesn't want you even in your meal to be a mixing symbols of life and death together. And so basically the commandment is to abstain from the bazaar. You know, in, in, in eating of foods. We eat foods to live. We don't eat foods to entertain ourselves. Unless, of course, you're eating some kind of sushi, which is food art. You know. But my point being is this. I believe the commandment that God has given to us is to be mindful that when we ingest food... That we're eating, the, in the case of meat, we're eating the flesh of the animal who has given its life so that we can have life. And by the way, God tells us further to abstain from the blood of the animal because the life is in the blood. We're not entitled to the animal's life for our life, but God has permitted us to have the flesh of the animal so that we might live. And he further gives other instructions that you cannot take a live animal, cut his leg off, keep him alive, and then eat his leg while he's still alive. He says even that is bizarre. You can't do that. You can't bleed an animal, take some of its blood, make some sort of paste out of it, eat that while the animal's still alive. That's bizarre. He says that, that's ridiculous. He said you're mixing life with death, and, and he doesn't want anything to do with it. So I think the commandment of eating dairy with meat, the, specifically the kid in the mother's milk, is no different than the other instruction about uh, that you can't eat the limb of an animal that's still alive, that you're not supposed to eat animals that are roadkill, that have been knocked down by a truck or a car, that were found dead, that you are to be very respectful of the life of the animal that gave its life so that you might eat, and you do it with dignity and respect of life. You never discredit uh, those things. Um, so here's the, here is Abraham serving curds, which is a form of cheese, with the Lord with meat, and it's not a problem. So um, I've heard some rabbinical explanations trying to say, well, there was about six hours of difference between this. This was a very long lunch, which is nonsense. You know, he served them together. He served them, and then he stood by and was watching them while they consumed them at the joint time. Now, if the Lord doesn't have a problem consuming curds and meat at the same time, then where did we get this instruction about we can't eat dairy and meat at the same time? What's... Because this is the first example of what you'd call a cheeseburger right here um, in this scripture for us. Um, that's, I just wanted to point that out because, you know, as we as Messianic go through, there are certain rabbinical instructions. They try to claim stuff from the scripture, but there is real dispute as to the truth of that and the correct interpretation of that. Again, this is a case of 
uh, understanding the commandments, the, the objective, the standards and conditions of the commandment, and where we see clear examples of the Lord doing something that seems to be contrary to religious instruction, I believe the clear examples that are being done are appropriate. I don't believe that this is a reason why. I don't, I don't believe Abraham made a mistake here, and I don't believe the Lord made a mistake eating it either um, from it. So um, I think that we have to balance all of the evidence that we get from the Scripture so we understand the commandments correctly. So they're having lunch. They're enjoying it. Verse 9, then they said, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, behold, in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. Behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Sarah, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid, and she said, No, but you did laugh. Now, the scene that we have of this is that obviously we're outside the tent. We're under the shade of the tree, the big oak tree there at Mamre. There's several oak trees there. We're having a nice, pleasant lunch. It has been served, a fancy cake because Sarah did, the veal, the curds, you know, the, the water. They're, they're consuming this nice lunch. And the Lord strikes up a conversation with Abram. Abraham in this case, and says, uh, where is Sarah, your wife? And he says, oh, she's in the tent. Well, I'll tell you where she's in the tent. She's just on the other side of the wall of the tent because she wants to listen and pay very close attention to what's going on in this conversation. Now, can you imagine the scene? Okay, and by the way, if you had guests that came to your house and it was just your parents that were sitting there with the guests, there's a good possibility that you might be hanging near the edges to see if you can catch a word as to what's going on or whatever. You can see the scene. And this tent, this goat's hair tent, is not a great sound barrier uh, for sound. It's pretty easy for her to sit in the tent and be near the wall of the tent and basically keep up with what the conversation's all about. And, of course, she'll go ahead and ask Abraham afterwards, well, what did they say? And correct him, of course, when he doesn't quite say it correctly as to what transpired. You can see the human part of Abraham and Sarah here. And this is the reason why when she hears God's pronouncement that she spontaneously, she can't, you know, I mean, she's trying to be quiet with herself, but she's obviously laughs out loud. And silent to, to herself, she says to herself, how is that possible? I mean, how could I ever have such a joy like that? I'm way past age, and, and my husband, he's past age. I mean, how, how in the world is, 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 could that ever happen? Uh, let me just tell you that as you get older, considerably older, there comes a moment in where you become aged, where you begin to realize that this part of your life, the the ability to, to have intimate relationship with your spouse, that that part of your life has passed. 
And just the subject of that we're gonna that's gonna happen again is just like well, sure, I'm sure that the sun is going to rise in the west tomorrow. I mean, it, I mean, it's like, kind of like there is no way that's going to happen. I mean, that, that just isn't going to happen. And so you can, you know, the, the human part of she's going, there's no way I'm going to have a kid, you know. Uh, that part of my life, that cycle of my life, that's gone. That's done. There's, by the way, he, he's got to do something before I can do something. I mean, you know, it just isn't going to happen. You know, they're past the age. When it says they're past the childbearing age, they're past that part of their relationship and their life. They don't have that kind of intimacy anymore. But the Lord turns around and says, nope, they're definitely going to have one. Which means there's a lot of things have to happen. And so the whole station of life that she's in, it's like a big chuckle. What are you talking about? I'm old. I mean, how's that going to happen? And so she laughs. Now, in last uh, portion that I shared with you, I also shared with you that when this was announced to Abraham, he himself laughed at this proposition. You know, God told Abraham, no, the son that you're going to have is not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be, his name will be Isaac, and he'll be born of Sarah. And Abraham was told, and he laughed at that. But his laughter was not to mock what the Lord had said. It was just... He, he's just going along with his life, and all of a sudden the Lord has just kind of like stumbled and tripped him up, and, and, and part of his getting adjusted is he's got to laugh for a moment. And it's a very normal human response on our part. Um, there are many examples on how laughter works for us, but basically all of us respond to, we laugh um, because we'll see something and we're expecting a certain thing to happen when suddenly something different uh, that's maybe the opposite of what you were expecting suddenly happened. Um, the humor of a good joke is it leads you in one direction, you're thinking one thing, and suddenly, uh, you know, it, 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 something else happens um, And uh, from that. Um, I hate to do this, but I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Um, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story. Um, but I want to tell you about what one of the uh, one of my all-time favorite jokes that I tell when I have a large assembly of people, especially if we have a lot of different activities going on. That usually will um, it, it will it will capitalize on this business of what people are expecting, and then there's great laughter that comes as a result of it. Um, it's actually two jokes that are told. And there's a couple of different variations of this, but I'll, I'll tell you the quick variation. The, you're in an assembly of people, like I'll be in an activity, like, a, like say that we're in a lobby, and there's people chit-chatting and so forth, and, and you tell a joke, and you tell this dumb joke about, in this particular case, the first part is about this guy who's trying to put uh, new shingles on his chicken shed. And he's counted out that he needs exactly, say, 145 shingles. He goes down to the lumber yard, wants to buy the shingles. They only sell them in gross bundles of 144 shingles in each bundle. But he needs exactly 145 shingles because he counted them up. Well, he can't get 
a single shingle. They won't sell him a single shingle. So he is forced to buy two bundles and buy all these extra shingles. And so what he does is he buys the two bundles and he takes one out of the, the, the one bundle. He sticks it in the other and he takes the other bundle that has 143 now and he throws those back into the lumber yard in, in uh, fed up with them and so forth. And, um, and you're telling the story very elaborately and the audience is listening and you come back and you go through the whole story about how he's putting the um, shingles up on his chicken shed and he's putting this beautiful roof up there and so forth. And he puts the last shingle on the chicken shed perfectly, the job's done. He steps back, he's admiring the work. He looks on the ground, there's one shingle. Here's, here's the one shingle, you know. And at that point, he's absolutely frustrated. He picks the shingle up, and then, then the joke, you, you, you make the motion of throwing the shingle. And, of course, all the people where you're in the setting of is kind of a, a dumb joke. I mean, it was kind of a, it was a little bit funny, but not that funny, you know, kind of thing. And you let the group where you're at, you let them linger for a while. Maybe even let uh, somebody else tell a few jokes or chit-chat about something else. And then eventually, after a short time, then you come back and say, hey, I have another joke I want to tell you. And you proceed to tell this second story. And the second story goes something like this. It says there's this, uh, there's this uh, woman who, is on, who gets on a bus, a city bus, and she has her little poodle. And she's riding the bus, and she gets on the bus, and the bus is full of people, but there's one seat left, and it's right beside this big construction worker, overalls, hard hat, and he's puffing on a cigar, and he's sitting by the window. And so there's only one seat, so she sits down beside him. Well, the old guy, the construction guy, he puffs on the cigar, and he blows smoke in the dog's face. And the dog starts yapping at it, starts barking. And the woman, of course, notices this and says, sir, please, please don't blow smoke in my dog's face. And he says something like, I don't like dogs. Then he puffs on a cigar and he blows it in the face again. And so she becomes angry and she says, sir, please, I'm telling you, you know, you're offending me. Don't blow smoke in the dog's face. He says, I don't like dogs. Well, she says, well, I don't like cigars. And he says, well... He said, I'll tell you what, throw your dog out the window and I'll throw my cigar out the window. And she, in the heat of the moment, takes him up on it. So she throws the dog out the window and the guy goes, well, what the heck? You know, so he throws the cigar out the window. Well, they've driven in the bus just a short distance where the woman suddenly realized what she did with her dog. So she runs up to the bus driver and says, stop the bus, stop the bus. And she jumps off. She gets on the street. Here comes the dog running down the street. And guess what it's got in its mouth? Everybody says the guard, but that's when you announce, no, it's the shingle. <laughs> you know, that was thrown in the joke a few jokes ago. <laughs> you see, the setup is you're expecting a certain result, but it turns out that's not it. It's something that you knew about or something you became aware of, but you never put the connection together quite the way. And so when the joke, the, the punchline is, oh, no, it was the shingle, it really, you know, really can open you up for laughter. I told that joke at a, at a training session when I was in the military. There was 50 of us guys sitting on metal chairs in this big room here in this lecture. 
it was a boring lecture. And I was, you know, we were kind of heads down, barely listening, and I was whispering, and I was telling this one guy the joke. You know, I told him the first part of the joke, and there was some chuckling. I waited a little while. And then I told the second part of the joke. When I told the second part of the joke, the guy goes, what, the cigar? I said, no, the shingle. There's about 20 guys that were listening to this joke. And it just absolutely was like somebody dropped a humor grenade right in the middle of the room. These guys started laughing. They bust out in the room. They were knocking chairs over. They were falling out of their chairs with laughter. And it's kind of embarrassing. I'm sitting on my chair, and all the guys around me, they're all falling off their chairs. They're laughing like mad. And the instructor's up there giving the lecture going, is somebody ill? What, what, what happened? You know, I mean, it was, believe me, it was funny, you know, the, the way it all came off. Um, I, I'm, I have actually, I, I tell a lot of jokes, um, and I try to retain jokes, but so I love humor. It reduces tension, and it's a lightly, light, lively way to, to um, interact with people, uh, make it enjoyable, make it fun uh, for it. And I really, I feel like I really understand Abraham and Sarah here. Uh, this this spontaneous laughter uh, to it. Now I make mention of this, and I and I and I've, I've focused on it a little bit because I have a certain expectation about when the Lord returns. Now we know, and the Scripture says to us that when the Lord returns and establishes kingdom, there's going to be incredible joy on our part. We know for a fact that the scripture says we're going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, the very first thing in the kingdom with the Messiah. He's going to tabernacle with us. We're going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem with him. We know that the Feast of Tabernacles, we have a double commandment to rejoice before the Lord. And part of rejoicing before the Lord is to in, enjoy yourself, to have laughter and, and expressions of, of lightheartedness and, and joy of that type. It's not just weeping joy. I, I really believe that when we get into the kingdom, that at that, that particular Feast of Tabernacles, I believe that it will be overwhelming to us. The change that has suddenly taken place from being in this former world being constrained by our mortality, suddenly putting on immortality, suddenly being in the presence of God, the God whom we only heard but never saw, suddenly being there with him with all sin and transgression gone and righteousness being established. I think that the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to be laughing our heads off that it will be such spontaneous joy, that there will be such an adjustment that we have to make, that we will literally see each other and be laughing with joy. That when we see the Lord, we will be laughing with him um, in this expression. So to me, joy, uh, great joy is, is their spontaneous laughter. Have you, ever, have you ever seen people spontaneously start laughing and they just can't stop laughing? I mean, it's really genuine. It's real. I mean, it, it's like it's got a life of its own. And I think that the 
when we realize the promise of God of being in his kingdom and being in his presence and that the previous things are done away with and, and we, we made it and all of our brethren, all of our family, all of our friends that we've made it, the, the, the joy is going to be so incredible that it will be humorous. And I think there'll be lots and lots of laughter. Now, how long will it last before we can kind of calm down and be reasonable about things? I don't know, but, but uh, my expectation is there will be great laughter at the beginning of the kingdom, great joy in that manner. So that's part of what I've always um, thought about in this, in this exchange of about Isaac, he laughs. Um, by the way, Isaac is a picture of the Messiah coming, you know, and when he comes, maybe we'll laugh. You know, when the, when the promised son comes to us, maybe we'll laugh as well, you know, with him. All right. So this portion uh, goes forward and... Um, and they complete their lunch, and then the, mon the men have a task before them. Uh, they were stopping by to see Abraham, but they really are en route to someplace else. And so if you look in chapter 18 and verse 16, it says, Then the men arose from there and looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, and in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about in him. This is an utterly fascinating piece of text we just read. Now, for those who struggle <clears throat> with the person of God, the unity of God being there in the form of three figures, three individuals coming up. By the way, in the Hebrew text, Abraham refers to, when he speaks to the three, he refers to him as Adonai. He refers to him that way. And it appears to us, the language they use, is, this is God, singular, Adonai, speaking to Abraham and Sarah, the promise of a son, and so forth. So we have three figures, but they're speaking as one. And they're getting ready to leave, and all of a sudden, one of the figures is talking to another one of the figures, and the other figure is answering that figure. In other words, Abraham is now witnessing a conversation going on between the three figures. This is God having a conversation with God, and Abraham is listening to it. All right? Are you with me? So, now let me go ahead and just, um, let's kind of step back from this for a moment. Have you ever, um, ever talked to yourself before? Well, if you're a normal person, everybody has at one time or another. You'll say something to yourself. However, it gets a little freaky if there's another voice in you that all of a sudden answers back. We call that schizophrenia, okay? And by the way, you need to go see a doctor if you've got that happening, okay? Something is definitely wrong. It's okay to talk to yourself. It's not okay to answer yourself, okay, from another voice. Now, God just did that. God just 
ask the question, shouldn't we tell Abraham what we are doing? And the answer comes, yes, we should tell Abraham, because this is who Abraham is, and this is what he's going to be doing. This is what we've got planned for Abraham's life. We should tell him what we're doing. And then two of those figures start walking for Sodom and Gomorrah. Another figure stays with Abraham to negotiate for the number of righteous. Two go to Sodom and Gomorrah. One stays with Abraham. Now, if this is Adonai, this is the Lord, and the Lord is one, then explain that. How in the world is God doing that? Well, the answer is very simple. God has parts, which is the way God has described himself from the very beginning. Even from the creation story, when he made the decision, man has become like one part of us, and that's the reason why he's got to leave the garden. Man became like one part of God. And so God obviously has parts. This is God's own words. And by the way, the part we didn't become like angels or other created beings and so forth. God is talking about God in this case. And here's a classic case of God speaking to God and Abraham is hearing the conversation. God's asking a question. God's answering the question. And he gets to be a witness to the whole thing. This is a very, very powerful moment in how God has decided to manifest himself to Abraham. It's equally as powerful as when God came down to Mount Sinai and spoke with his own voice to the children of Israel, speaking the Ten Commandments. This is God manifesting God. And it is part of, and needs to be part of, our understanding of God. So it shouldn't shock us, should not be disturbing to us whatsoever, when we hear the testimony of Yeshua come walking up and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is God talking to God. By the way, God's been doing that. He has done that before. God has talked to God in front of Abraham. We didn't have a problem with it then. So why would we have a problem there? Obviously, we shouldn't. However, Judaism wrestles with this. They can't come to terms with it. So you know what they classify all of this as? Well, it's just angels. Just angels talking to each other. It's just angels that went down there. It wasn't the Lord. Excuse me, but angels don't have the power to go around judging people. They only have the power to do what the Lord tells them to do. They're ministering servant, uh, spirits and things like that, and they don't bring about judgment. Only God does that. So they're going to go down there, and, and um, we're going to have this incident now with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, verse 20, and the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they've done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Why in the world would God need to go down with two figures to see for himself what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? The answer is, very simply, because those are the rules of God. God says that if I'm going to collect up evidence of wrongdoing, that I have to have the evidence of two or three. He has to have the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's going to go down for himself, and he's going to have two witnesses, and he's going to determine what is the outcry of Sodom. For the record, and I'm not going to go into great detail on this, but uh, a lot of people 
have always thought that the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah had to do with um, a lot to do with sexual perversion. Uh, it is true that there was much sexual perversion, but the reality is that the perversions that were going on sexually with Sodom and Gomorrah was symptomatic. It wasn't the causes. Let me say, make this statement also as well. The great sin that is going on in our world, in our country today, is not the homosexuals and the lesbians. That's simply symptomatic of the other sin. It's, it, it's what comes with this other sin. So what is the greater sin that has brought that about? What, what was it that was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah that brought about all this sexual perversion that was going on? What is the sin that's going on that's brought all this homosexual lesbian stuff and all this sexual perversion that we see today? What, it's the same sin. What is it? It is corrupt judges. When the judicial process of the civilized people becomes corrupted, when the innocent are judged as guilty, when the guilty are judged as innocent by corruption in the judicial process through corrupt judges and corrupt officers of the court, that's when you see these kinds of symptoms. Look at the present state of affairs of our country. What has brought about in this country, which, by the way, was a Christian nation, what has brought about gay marriage, open homosexuality, changing of laws, and so it was all done in the courts. It was not done by the legislature. Our lawmakers didn't make these rules. Society didn't rise up and say, we need to do this. The people didn't do this. Judges made all of these decisions. Judges decided that gay marriage was to be legal. Judges said that homosexuals could do what they wanted to do. Judges affected every one of those decisions that we have. And by the way, those same judges that made those judgments on those things are the same judges that are making other judgments on other issues that are adversely affecting all of us. Judges not even elected leaders, appointed judges is how the corruption comes in. And that was the outcry of Sodom. And when he went down, so the angels will go down, the Lord will go down in the form of these two figures and we'll proceed. But before we get there, Abraham's going to negotiate for the number of righteous to avoid God's judgment. And beginning in verse 22... Abraham begins to negotiate with the Lord and say to him, verse 24, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will thou indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? And, and he argues, Far be it from you, Lord, that you would do such a thing, that you would destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. Which, by the way, is a pretty good logical argument for the Lord. Lord, you're not going to destroy the righteous while you destroy the unrighteous. Truly, you will be... And he says here, the last phrase of verse 25, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Who's the judge of the whole earth? That would be God. God Almighty, judge of the whole earth. And so he says, it, surely the judge of the earth wouldn't do that. Well, the Lord agrees with him. 
The Lord says, fine. So then he adjusts the number. And by the way, he humbles up. He's trying to make sure I'm not being presumptive, you know. So in verse 27, Abraham says, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. In other words, thank you for receiving me. Thank you for listening to me. And by the way, I recognize I'm just dust and ashes. I have no righteousness. I have no leg to stand on to even speak these matters for it. However, he does have something he's standing on. He just got through showing hospitality to the Lord. And the Lord can be entreated. It is a fact. It is a known fact of every salesman, every businessman. If you're trying to put a deal together, you're trying to get an agreement on a contract, you have got to have something on the table that will entreat your potential customer or person that you're entering the deal. You need to have a meal. You need to have a drink. You need to have something that they can internalize and they can enjoy with it. That's the reason why you take them to dinner. That's the reason why you offer to buy them a drink. You have to show some form of hospitality to entreat the person to consider the deal. It's well known. It, it's, it's understood by every salesman there is out there. And by every businessman knows this principle. Abraham is simply following through. He served lunch to him. He's entreating him to negotiate with him for the number of righteous. Now, as you know, um, he then proceeds to drop it by five. Verse 28 shows the, suppose the 50 are lacking five. Well, he gets away with that. So he decides to go for tens. I mean, it's a measuring out. How far can I go with this thing? Let's, let's go until he says no. So it goes from 40 to 30, verse 30, down to 20, verse 31. And only this one last time, listen to me, verse 32, how about if there's just 10? And he says, I will not destroy it on account of 10. And we get back to the number 10. What is the number 10 always mean through, thematically throughout Scripture. It means one particular thing, confidence in God. Confidence in God. Here very shortly, you're going to hear about Abraham dispatching Eliezer, his servant, with ten camels to go get a bride for Isaac. You're going to hear about God giving ten commandments you're going to hear about later on in the Torah portion about 10 times the people have tested the Lord. What does the number 10 has to do? It has to do with confidence. Uh, let me just give you as a simple fact. If you keep all 10 commandments and you consciously have kept all 10 commandments, then you have confidence before God to ask God anything in your relationship. You're prepared to discuss anything with the Lord because you have you have no shortcoming. You are, you're confident. Now, if you've messed up and you know you haven't done what you were supposed to do, then you have no confidence, you know, to approach your relationship with God. But if you've done what was expected of you, then you can be confident about going before the Lord. Well, Abraham is going confidently before the Lord. And that's what you're really seeing here. It's not that he's a master negotiator. He's confident in the Lord. 
He's confident in his relationship with the Lord. So he negotiates it down to where his confidence is at. This one last time, let me just ask that I was really all those other numbers just to get to here. And so the Lord agrees at the number 10. Now, as you all know, the two uh, figures make their way down into Sodom and Gomorrah, at which point they meet Lot. And Lot immediately welcomes them and compels them to come and stay at his house. Now, normally in the ancient times, in a city of this type, there would have been an open square, an open area where they would set up the market and other things. Well, in the daytime, there's a market there. But at nighttime, the marketplace goes away and strangers and travelers would come into that part of the city and they would, you know, lay out their pallet and they would, they would sleep in the city during the night because there was the protection of the city from outside in the elements, from either wild animals or thieves or whatever the case may be. So it was safe to be in the city because they'd closed the gates of the city. So they're coming into this normal city, or at least they think it's a normal city, and instead of staying in the normal area, Lot knows, no, I need to get them into my house because if they're in the normal part of the city, they're going to be harmed. Because, see, Sodom has a whole series of stories associated with it about these corrupt judges. In fact, um, there is a parallel book to the Bible here. It's called the Book of Yasher. It's not considered holy writ, but it does have extra biblical stories that explains the background of a lot of things. And one of the backgrounds that it gives is that in Sodom and Gomorrah, strangers and travelers would come into the city and they would, uh, you know, sleep. And then somebody would come up and say, oh, well, you don't have to sleep here. Come, you know, you can come over to my place and then treat them with fake hospitality, bed them down, feed their animals, blah, 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 so forth. And then claim that they contracted with them for this high payment. When they never contracted for payment, they were just showing hospitality. But suddenly, the resident in the city says, no, we agreed. He was going to pay me, and he brings them before the judge. And the judge then favors the resident of Sodom to the harm of the traveler. And this is what they became known for, that they were harming travelers and strangers left and right, who happened to make the mistake of going through that city. And there were five cities involved in this process. And they all had corrupt judges doing this. They had set up a racket to harm anybody coming through the area. Um, they, uh, there's one particular story told of a man who came in that was very hungry and he needed to buy food. And they mocked the man and they said to him that food here was free. And they said, oh, excellent. Well, I need some. I'm, I'm desperately hungry and so forth. And what they did was they constrained the man. They tied him in chains. And then they set out food just beyond his reach out in front of him. He says, it's all free there. Go ahead. You can have it. And they literally were torturing him, a starving man with, with food set out in front of him but that he couldn't reach. And they would eat the food in front of him, mocking him because he'd come in begging and that the cities and the city officials would agree to this kind of behavior. It, there was some horrible stuff, you know, that still there's all kinds of other stories. Again, all examples 
of how the city, the city officials, the city leaders, the judges have all become corrupt to the great harm of strangers and travelers. You remember how the Torah gives us the specific instruction about, in the Torah it specifically says, we are not to harm strangers and travelers. We are to remember that we used to be servants and slaves in Egypt and remember how we were treated to learn how we should treat others. And we're also told that at sometimes we may be entertaining angels unawares. Where do you think we get that expression from? We get that from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels who came in, the angelic figures who came in, and we didn't know who they were and what Sodom did with them. That's where that originates from, that instruction. The whole idea, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah had to do with the mistreatment of the innocent, mistreatment of strangers and travelers and so forth. And one of the most desperate things that can ever happen to you, and I pray that it doesn't uh, to any of you, is to be in a traveling status and to be robbed on the highway or to be harmed or taken advantage of, say, you have a car breakdown and somebody comes and does further harm to you. It's the worst kind of offense that can take place. And then to have the law enforcement or the judicial system do nothing to help you. It's just even more devastating in its consequences. And the Lord, that's considered to be the outcry of Sodom when that happens. And... Um, uh, God uh, talks about the, the judgment that comes upon him as a very special kind of judgment uh, because of that activity. So anyways, uh, Lot gets them to come into his house to protect him, to keep him safe. And um, the, um, but the men of the city um, find out about them being there. And I, wanna, I want you to read um, here before about this. Um, verse chapter 19, verse 2, and he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet, then you may rise early and go your way. They said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. He prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, and all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Talk about absurd and bizarre. They're telling Lot, bring those guys out. You know, we want to have sex with them. Does that sound like a hospital city? That is, that's, that's mob rule. There is no righteousness. There's no justice in this whatsoever. But Lot went out to them in the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with them. Please let me bring them out to you. Do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. That is equally bizarre that Lot would offer up his two virgin daughters and say, hey, why don't you party with them and leave these guys alone? They reject that. The, the, the people of Sodom reject it. Look at this verse, verse 9. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien. Already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. This one came in as an alien. 
two figures came in. Why are they saying of the two figures that came in, this one has come in and is acting like a judge? Even they recognized that those two figures represented Echad. It was one. It was the one God. You know, the judge of the whole earth has come for a visit. Even they know God has come to them to visit. And they, in a crazy sense, think that God who's come to judge them, that somehow they still have authority and a power over him and they can do as they please. Now, I know that sounds crazy to you. But you want to hear something just as crazy? If you read further about the end of the ages, about, you know, when God returns the day of the Lord, the scripture says the Antimessiah is going to convince men in this world to prepare to do battle with God, who's coming through the universe, coming to the earth. They are telling men, get ready to fight God. And they actually think they can fight God when he shows up. Talk about crazy. They have no idea who they're dealing with. They have no idea what his authority and his power is. And when you have that kind of blanket absurdity, it's the difference between light and darkness. And by the way, the darkness has no power over the light whatsoever. The moment the light shines, the darkness can't stay there. That darkness has no power over the light. Evil has no power over God. And here it emphatically says, even though we know these two figures are present, even they recognize the unity of God and they say, this one came in as an alien. Already he is acting like a judge. Well, you darn tootin' he's acting like a judge. He's the judge of the whole world. And he, was just, he came down here to see for himself. By the way, he just got all the evidence he needs. He got all the evidence he needs about this whole city because it says there was representatives from every quarter of the city. And by the way, where's the 10 righteous? Well, he's in the house with a couple of them, but there's no more. There are no 10 here. The Jews use this story about the number of the 10 to establish what we call uh, daily prayer is what is called a minion. A minion means ten. And for daily prayers, the Jews will come together and do morning prayers and afternoon prayers. And what they're looking for is ten righteous men to pray in the city that day. They believe that if they can assemble ten righteous in the city, that God will not judge that city. Like God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. That they can plead for the mercy of God for the city that they live in. But you've got to get ten together. And without a minion, you don't, have, you don't have enough argument based on Abraham's negotiation with the Lord. You don't have enough to qualify to stop God's justice. Sodom and Gomorrah did not receive mercy because there was no ten righteous. That was the agreement that God made. God went down and saw, hey, they deserve to be judged. There's no ten righteous. Let's do it. And so the story results in, as you know, Lot attempts that night to try to get his sons-in-law to come. They all think he's joking, jesting about the whole thing. And he escapes with his daughter and his wife. 
And you know the story. It goes on to tell us that she turned back as they were escaping and became a pillar of salt. We believe that Sodom and Gomorrah used to be down near the Dead Sea area where there are large um, salt areas. And uh, uh, one of the things you'll do if you ever go on a tour to Israel is the tour guides will take you by and take you to some of the mountains and the rocks of all the salt uh, that is around there. In fact, I've got a big piece of salt from there in my own office uh, from it that tells the truth of the story of this place and where it was located at. Brimstone can actually be found there. And by brimstone, I mean you can get this stuff and you can light it on fire and it will burn and it will stink. And by the way, when you light it up, you'll have to evacuate about two square blocks because it's toxic and will poison you from it. This stuff is all over the ground there. You know, God really did hit this place with brimstone and really, and there was salt and he, he made it barren. Uh, the place where it used to be. Now, I mentioned that, uh, and I wanted to mention this story in particular because um, uh, part of the future judgment of the world is based on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's what we have. Now, my time has run out. I wanted to cover some of, uh, of Abraham taking Moses up for the binding of Isaac, but praise the Lord, in our, in our holidays, we get to mention that story of Acts 22, at other times, and so we'll save that particular part of our Torah portion for the high holidays when it's the traditional teaching at that time. That's our portion for this Sabbath. Join me in prayer, please. Father, thank you for this Sabbath. Thank you for the Torah portion. And Lord, we would ask that we would learn the lessons of our father Abraham. We would learn to do the works of Abraham, that we would learn to understand your principles and your rules and your teachings to apply to our life. Thank you for our redemption. Thank you, Lord, for being a righteous and true God and help us to be a righteous people before you. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.